and and I'm I'm not used to doing the the intro. Marlene has done it. Uh, it she has ownership. It's a new of this. experience for exactly. both of us. You know. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right, let's dive in. Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Greg Lambert. And I'm Katie Brown, and I'm stepping in for Marlene this week as she travels to Iltacon at the National Harbor. So, Katie, thank you very much for taking the time to co-host with me. Certainly. I know you got a lot going on. I know schools <laughs> just started up, uh, but uh, really I wanted to get you on here because when we were at Denver at uh, the AALL conference, you actually did a crystal ball question for us, but then yep. you you like took ownership of the <laughs> of the microphone and got uh, Abby uh, Dos Santos to answer a crystal ball question as well. And you know, I, you just have this way of getting people to do things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd love to say that it's you know my magnetic personality or the theater background in me, but you know, actually, it's I. I think that it was just a great experience to be able to, to chit chat and stop and sit down with people and talk to them about what was going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yep. So uh, before we get too far along, I want to ask you a couple of questions. One sure. is uh, kind of introduce yourself to everybody in case uh, they don't know you. And then uh, tell us about your experience at uh, AAAL this year. Yeah, so I'm Katie Brown, and I'm actually the Associate Dean for Information Resources at the Charleston School of Law. I had the opportunity to go to Denver this summer, and actually I was a part of the pre-conference workshop that was on teaching people how to teach technology. So that was really cool because that's 100% of my wheelhouse. But the reality was so much of AAAL that I really enjoyed was actually just stopping and talking to people, as I kind of mentioned, you know, being able to, I, I'm an extrovert, if you can't tell. Um, so being able to have those face-to-face -face conversations were really key after so many of, you know, the video conference thing. Yeah. Yeah, us extroverts, we really stick out at, uh, at library conferences. A little bit. <laughs> Give me a mic. I'll take it every day. <laughs> so I, I think you really kind of hit uh, the theme that we're, we're going here. And so the way that we're going to work out this episode is I'm going to play first your answer to the crystal ball question. And then we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then we'll... Uh, get your and uh, Abby DeSantos answer to the crystal ball question. But really the theme, and I, I, I think this may actually end up being the title, is teaching people how to teach technology, especially in law schools. And so I think as a listener, you can kind of catch this idea that we're going to be hitting on a lot, which is where's the disconnect between the law schools teaching the students to be prepared for the practice of law and the law firms or the legal market itself on what can we be doing to funnel information back to the law schools on what's a better way or what what's the outcomes that we want to see before these uh, students and uh, new lawyers show up at our door. So we'll get started with the, uh, with your crystal ball question. And again, you always have a, you've always had a passion of wanting to, to teach practical technology to law schools. So let's jump in and listen, and then we'll come back and talk some more on this. Sounds good. 
so Mike, focus is a little bit more of an academic answer, but I really think it, it applies across the whole legal industry. Because of COVID, I think we started to see a push with legal technology. We started to use it being utilized more and more through practice and COVID happens and it's accelerated, right? One of the big things for all law schools is we have this ABA standard. We are required to educate people so that they can go out into the practice and successfully do that. And so beyond just you know rule 1.1 with legal technology and having that competency, for us as law schools, I think we have an ethical obligation to be teaching legal technology. So I think what you're gonna start to see, and I mean, we're seeing it here in this vendor space, right? So much legal tech. So many law schools are looking to invest and learn more about it. And so I think you're going to start to see where all law schools are going to have at least one legal technology class. And then trying to implement it even more in those doctrinal classes, even if you got some faculty or not as interested. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you think would be, say the, the that one class, what, what's the lowest hanging fruit for a, a school that wants to begin teaching technology that would make sense for them to start off with? So I think if you're going all the way back to the basics, there is still that misconception about the digital native. Um, more and more undergrads are Google-based schools. So we have students that are coming into law school that literally have never used Word before. So it is on us to teach them the basics of Word. And I know that there are some people out there that say, well, that's not the librarian's role, right? We've got these <laughs> if, higher degrees. If not us, who? We don't, yeah. <laughs> well, 100% agree with that. <laughs> but I think the other thing, too, is that's where you get them in the legal writing classes. Whether it's called like legal practice or legal research and writing. You bring it in there because they have assignments where they have to draft these briefs. They have to draft these memos. So make it so it also has this technology aspect to it. So they have to use styles. Have them create something that has a template that they need to use for more than one. So it's really simple things you can do to add to a class. And even if it's not the librarian coming in to do it, maybe it's a writing professor. That's again, another way to get buy-in from your faculty. Total low-hanging fruit, really, really easy to do. Great. Well, Katie Brown, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. All right, well, Katie, thanks again for uh, letting me stick a microphone in, in your face there <laughs> in, at, in the uh, vendor hall in Denver. And so let's, uh, let's, let's jump back and, you know, do you want to expand a little bit on, on your answer now that you've thought about it? <laughs> yeah, no, when I was sort of, listening to it again, I, I was thinking, obviously at the very end, I mentioned the faculty, right? And so I want to kind of expand that world a little bit because I think that it isn't just, you know, having a faculty culture that is willing to teach tech. I really think it's more the institution, the university's culture, because it costs money, right? Like technology is expensive and the most effective way to teach technology is to get people in there and playing with it. So you have to have a culture at your school that is really willing to invest financially and with bodies, right? Hiring faculty that are aware of technology, having librarians step out of the library and teach it in the classroom. You have to be able to have that financial support from the entire institution to really, you know, move it into the space. So even though if you've got a few individuals who are really excited about it, you really, you know, to be able to move that 
needle forward, you've got to be able to have a little bit more of an investment. And so I think that's a big challenge, right, for some folks. One of the things that I think is really interesting is um, Jessica DiPario Whitman and I, we write in this area and over COVID, we were gathering a lot of fun sort of statistics for a piece that we're working on. And one of the things that we discovered was that we went through and we looked at all of the law school websites and we mined what sort of legal tech space classes were being taught. So this would have been over the course of a year that we did this. And when we went in those websites, we found, you know, some some decent statistics. Like when we think about the positives, there was about 97.9% of law schools that were offering courses within sort of this tech space, which equal to about 670 courses. So like in your brain right now, right? You're thinking that's a lot, you know, I don't know. You might not be Greg, but no, in my brain, I, you know, I'm thinking about it, right? Like the numbers, that, that seems like it would be a pretty big number, but then you start to break it down and you actually look at it and you realize that with our, you know, 190, some on 99 ABA accredited schools, if you average it out, that's actually only 3.38 classes being taught in the tech space. And I mean, we were really broad, right, With when we were sort of searching for this. And so I think that that's one big issue that kind of I'm talking about in my crystal ball issue is that we've got to be able to be teaching this in the classroom because if we're not teaching in the classroom, by the time they get to you all in the firm, there is a real disconnect there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something we've got to think about because, yeah, there are some schools that maybe have 10 or 12 tech-related courses in a year, but there are some other schools that don't have any, right? Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Now, uh, before we jump on, uh, I want to uh, ask you a couple of things. One, first, yeah. uh, uh, Jessica, who, who's Jessica and what, what have you been working on? <laughs> So Jessica DePario Whitman, she is actually the uh, associate, I'm sorry, the director at the University of Connecticut Law School. Mm -hmm. And we're really excited. We've got this um, article that we have been working on um, for, it seems like all of COVID, um, that's all about tech teaching technology and whether or not law schools actually have an ethical obligation to be teaching it. And so, you know, our stance as the co-authors of this is that they really do. They have an obligation. We have to, you know, it goes beyond just that, like, 1.1 comment 8 adopted law from the model rules. It, it, it really is about the fact that we with the ABA guidelines, have a requirement to graduate people that are practice ready, right? We have to, our job is to have a rigorous curriculum that allows them to be able to practice in law. And there's so much legal tech in the practice of law. We saw it as a result of COVID, but even before then it was starting to become, you know, more and more vendors and more and more resources and statistics and, right. you know, platforms and all of that. And so if we're not teaching them about it, they won't learn it by the time they get to you. So I personally believe that our accreditation in theory could potentially be up if you have a school that's not teaching technology. I mean, I think the ABA should say, should kind of step in and say, hey, you're not actually teaching people to be ready to practice law. But I do also have kind of an extreme, Jessica and I have kind of an extreme stance on this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's I think it's necessary. Now, the other question I had is uh, you started off by saying something that I think we all uh, feel, and that is technology is expensive. 
Now I'm I'm going to be um, I'm gonna I'm gonna show one. I'm gonna probably date myself because you know I, I graduated law school in 1997, um, and <laughs> one of the things that I remember was, uh, for example, like Westlaw and Lexus, that what the law schools paid for those subscriptions was, you know, a pittance compared to what the the rest of the market was was paying for those. And the idea was the old, you know, get them while they're in law school, uh, get them addicted to these uh, these resources, and we'll make our money up uh, as they enter into the market. Now, would technology and one, I'm not even sure if, if Westlaw and, and Lexus do that anymore, if there's a big reduction on what schools pay, but would it make sense for you to, especially in the age of so much cloud computing to where you may not necessarily need to have a stack of servers in a closet somewhere in, in the law schools like we used to, are these technology companies seeing law schools as a loss leader uh, to get people trained up so that they use products uh, out in the industry? You know, I think I think that that same model is still there, right? The big challenge with it is that there is so many other vendors in play when you get into practice. Um, I think that, you know, yes, you got the West Alexis model. Um, some schools are Bloomberg schools as well. So in their 1L year, they're getting exposure to all three of those um, at the same time. But now, you know, I mean, there are practice-specific vendors. There are, I mean, there's, the world is so substantial for what is out there that it's up to the school to, I guess, maybe determine what they feel like the most bang for the buck is. Now, they're obviously with some of these vendors like Wessel, Lexus, and, and Bloomberg, they're going to work with the school because they want to get them in early. So they will drop prices. They will, you know, they'll work with you as much as they can. There are some, you know, other vendors that aren't in a, in a situation to be able to do that just because of bottom line. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's not really an option for them if they don't kind of get the, but I think the way that you can approach, and again, I'm kind of going to wear my librarian hat. I think the way you can approach this is thinking about it from a budget point of view, right? So one of the things under the ABA guidelines and the standards is that we've got to have a collection, right? So it can be a print collection. It can be an electronic collection that supports the mission of your school. So whatever your school is teaching. So if you're an IP-focused school, right, if that's part of your initiative, I think you should invest in additional technology vendors if that's the focus, right? Right. So I don't think it's necessarily that you need to get everything, um, but I think that you should splurge (laughs) uh, if you can or negotiate, yeah. Well, in in the library, we call it a, we call it a special collection, and <laughs> yeah. so I would I would say yeah if you're if you have a focus or if you are you know if if fifty percent of your graduates are going into a certain field or are are doing uh, you know there there are some schools where I imagine there's a lot of their graduates that go you know one of their first jobs is e-discovery just because yeah. that's where a lot of you know so having a you know, a special collection in e-discovery technology would make sense. And that we need to broaden the scope of what that special collection is, right? That special collection isn't just a book on it or an ebook on it. Like the special right. collection is the, I'm actually going to invest in the product itself and I'm going to teach somebody how to use that. Um, and be it if that's, you know, through lunch and learns or teaching tra- programs like, um, 
I know Oklahoma University does a lot of additional sort of technology training outside of what they get in the classroom. It could be that, or it could be in the classroom. If you have a cybersecurity class, why not invest in some of those tools or, or work with the people who are the vendors in that market to say, do you mind? Can we use this? Even if it's, can I get this for a week for them to play in and do a homework assignment? Then they're going to get exposure to it, right? Because the reality is, is we also have at a lot of our institutions requirements for students to take skills classes or drafting classes. So how great would it be if some of those skills are these technology skills, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just think that's a, you know, that would be a really great way to kind of address this, this lack of technology training that's happening at a lot of schools. Yeah, makes sense. All right. So I'm going to let you lead into this, the second one. So uh, if you don't mind, give us a little background on how you convinced uh, Abby DeSantos <laughs> in, into talking to you because she was really reluctant to uh, to talk to me when I when I cornered her for the uh, crystal ball question, if, <laughs> if, if I'm remembering things right. Yeah. So um, I, first I'll say that I think it's just because I Abby and I were on the, we worked on the summit committee together. So we already had this sort of freestanding uh, relationship and dialogue and sort of, she's a big idea person, right? Yeah. Um, which is probably why you wanted her to answer the crystal ball question. And so it was, you know, she and I started this conversation just about technology and then you handed us two mics <laughs> and you know me, I just ran with button. it. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much that's what happened. Um, and so you'll actually hear at the start where we're kind of like catching people up a little bit mm -hmm. about the start of the conversation that we had had off the mic before we go, you know, <laughs> yeah. before we deep too, too, too far into it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to roll into this conversation and then we'll come back on the other side and talk some more about it. So I'm Abby Dos Santos and I'm a reference librarian at Kaplan and Drysdale. And I am Katie Brown, Charleston School of Law. And so again, we had the great opportunity of being part of the summit together had some collaboration discussions there. Yes. And so when we're thinking about legal tech, I think, you know, we started this conversation sort of off the mic. Yeah. And so I'll just sort of bring people up to date here. One of the things we were talking about was sort of that boom, that boom that happened with technology, but that there's so much out there. Yeah. There's so much tech out there. So now it's the, how do we fine tune it, right? Yeah. And the thing that's great with the fine tuning is the conversation. So what are some of the things that we feel like we need to be talking about so that we can come to a place where the tech is helping you all in the firm land, but from my end, I can teach it to them in my tech classes or sort of sneaking them into other classes. So what are, what are your kind of thoughts about that? Well, I definitely think, I mean, it's the overall tech, right? So it's not just the fancy widgets or <laughs> analytics or things like that, but like, you know, why is it important? Why are we using it? Why is it making it more efficient? Yeah, I think for me, when I think about it with what I'm bringing into the law school classroom, there's so much out there, right? And I will say vendors are really generous oftentimes with, they might do a demo or they might give you access to it. But the reality is I could show them all the buzzes and whistles, but it's not if it's not what you guys are really using in the firm, right? what's the value? Right. You know, I think that that's something where both you know, it's so important for us in different library types to be having this discussion because I do only want to show them what's practical, what right. is actually going to be being used in practice. And I know that will change from firm to firm, but for you, kind of, what do you see with this collaboration? How does it help you 
to have the discussion with us who are teaching sort of legal tech? Well, what happens is, is that we have summer associates come in and they don't realize what's out there. They don't realize all the different things that they have. They're just seeing maybe like one idea, like one Westlaw or one Lexus, and they don't realize that there's a bunch of other things that we use in practice. I mean, there's stuff for litigation, there's stuff for dockets, there's stuff for like my main practices. So it's more just like talking about, I think it's actually more talking about um, legal tech as a whole, as a okay. broader whole, and being like, there's a, a world of information out there, and you're going to be introduced to that when you go into practice. What have you seen to be the biggest gap? And again, I know this is just your own personal law firm. Every law firm is going to be a little bit different, but where, where have you seen that gap? Because again, obviously, we're looking at it. We want to fill that gap. We want to make sure that when they get to you, yeah, maybe they don't know all about it, but they've got a sample of it. So are you seeing like one particular area where our, our students need to know some more about it? Um, I think the gap is actually, I think it's like, a, it's a large gap. I, don't, I mean, it's just like okay. not knowing, honestly. Oh, so the we don't know what we don't know when yes. it comes to legal tech? Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even you were talking about, and this again was a little bit up, I think from your previous answer where it's, you know, it's some, some of the basics. You were talking about styles. I mean, it, yes. there's a lot of things that these students don't know right now so it's kind of giving that broader context. And I think that we can do that if we're talking together between private law librarians and academic law librarians. So like talking about the future, like what is the future? I think there needs to be more collaboration and more partnerships so that we can provide better services to either the law students or to our attorneys. Yeah, I'm also wondering too, what is there value in having you all come into some of our classes? and be guest lecturers and talk about what it's really like. Yes. So I'm going to I'm going to do a follow-up question with that like <laughs> what So explain to me a little bit of that value. What is that value to bringing you all into our classroom? Well, I think it's just being able to to talk about practice. I mean, so let me step back a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of the times when you're teaching law students, you're talking about doing clinics and like doing that kind of practice part of it, but they don't talk about the daily part of it. So, you know, coming into the legal research class, we can say like, you know, when you're at a law firm, these are the type of things that you're going to be exposed to in terms of legal tech or in terms of research platforms. And that, if that makes sense, you know, yeah, yeah. so it's not just the, the clinic part, but it's also the firm part. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the idea. We, you know, you, when you're in a law school, you got to try to, at least my approach is always, let's try to make it tangible. Let's try to turn it into a practice. So again, I'm really excited for the future. I know you and I had the opportunity to work together this year on some projects, hoping to continue to do that so we can maybe make that gap or that divide smaller, right? Exactly. And through conversation, hopefully, maybe we can even make it disappear. Yeah. So thank you for talking to me today. <laughs> thank you. Katie, uh, listening to that, there was there was one thing that you and Abby uh, mentioned, and you specifically mentioned, was that uh, the the digital natives that we think they are are actually going to these Google-based schools. So, yeah. do, you, do you mind telling me what you what you mean by a Google-based school and how those types of schools affect law students when they move away from undergraduate programs into law school? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think that it is really interesting because it's sort of this two-pronged problem, right? So like if we take the first piece of it, which is more this sort of like heady concept, which I think is my problem, right? My problem as an instructor is this idea that I'm making an assumption that when people come into my classroom, they've got this base level of knowledge. So you mentioned the digital native, right? Like this, it's been proven now that that's pretty much a fallacy. Just because you grew up with a cell phone or you, you know, the internet generation doesn't mean you actually know about tech. Right. So I think the same thing is true. We make this assumption that every student comes to law school and they have had exposure to the Microsoft suite. And I mean, you guys might have even done this in your firm, right? I mean, hopefully by the time they get to the firm, they've played with it a little bit in law school. But, you know, it depends on the school. It depends on the program would be my guess, uh, how much exposure they've had to yeah. it. And Microsoft Office is expensive. Right. Exactly. And so I think what ends up happening for some undergrads is they figured out we can actually use this Google bank of resources. We can use Google Docs. We can use Google Drive. And that's what they're using as the primary word processing system for their school. Mm -hmm. And so they get around having to purchase Word or requiring their students to purchase Word, right? So I think, you know, we all know what sort of has been happening across the board with education. It's really expensive. So trying to potentially cut some corners or saying, hey, Google works for us, right? We can make this work. But what that result is, is by the time they come to us in law school, beyond just the whole Microsoft suite, a lot of them have never even used Word. So I'm going in and I'm in the legal research and writing classroom with them. And we actually added a couple years ago a um, technology word day because the writing professors were having to take points off because they couldn't do basic formatting things. And again, I think that was on us as instructors to realize we were making assumptions, right? We were making assumptions that they knew how to change fonts. We were making assumptions that they knew how to do margins. You know, we're not even talking about styles yet, right? We're talking about some of this basic tech stuff that doesn't always translate well from Google. And so that I think goes one of the, you know, when I'm talking about Google-based schools and the problem that that's creating is we have to get out of our own way and assume they don't know it, right? And so even when I teach to the students, I tell them, hey, some of you, this is going to be old hat. Like this is something that you already know how to do. Bear with us, help your neighbor if they get stuck. But here's the basics. And we start with like, here's your ribbon. <laughs> here's how you add things to your ribbon. <laughs> you know? yeah. Here's the stuff you're going to need to know. Like for those of you who have never, you know, you've, you've actually never known how to put the, the symbol in there for the statutes, right? So like, this is how you make a hotkey. <laughs> those right. very basic things. I was so proud of myself in law school when I figured out <laughs> Alt-21 Alt was a section symbol. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or paragraph one, alt 20 and alt 21 were my friends. So, yeah, exactly. So, I think that that's the thing. You know, there's with that disconnect, there's a big leap to get students to that point when they are at a Google based school. Cause it's, I've had more than one student that have come to me and said, I've never seen this before. All we've ever used is Google. Yeah. Um, and then you're asking them to, you know, make all these modifications and get points taken off if they are not actually formatting Word correctly. And the reality is, I mean, we know that's a huge part of the practice of law. I mean, that's what Casey Flaherty and the Kia Audit and all of that is based off of if it takes you too much time. Your client's losing money. Your yeah. firm's losing money. Yeah. And that's the thing is uh, right now I would say between Microsoft Word, Outlook, uh, and now basically Microsoft Edge because 
there's so many there's a number of firms now that won't even allow you to have Chrome Google Chrome as your web browser. So, you know, there's three Microsoft products that you're probably going when it, when you are working in programs on your computer, you're going to be in those three probably 90% of the time. And I, you know, it's just one of those things I hadn't thought of about the fact that kids and I say kids, but you know, when they when they when they're in high school, um, my wife teaches at a middle school. They're a Google-based school. Yeah. I know the high school is Google-based. I imagine that the uh, you know that the, the universities will be. And so, yeah, you could have you know, when I was in law school, I did probably well. I, I would say uh, let me let me back that up because uh, <laughs> was there a computer lab? We were, we, we were still using WordStar and uh, and uh, WordPerfect four point two. What's pie in your email? So, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Lo- Lotus Notes and Lotus One Two Three were. We're, we're where we are. So, uh, anyways, forget I said that. I'm. I'll, I'll probably. I'll probably just strip You'll that just out. You'll just edit that part out. Yeah, I'll just edit that part out. Um, but I would, you know, up, up through probably 2012, 2013, that we were still using Microsoft products. But then all of a sudden, as the Google platform became less expensive, and and you know and. It's a great product for what it is, um, but we yeah. just don't use it in, in law firms and our IT and our security people won't let us use that. So nope. um, every time I go into Google Docs, I have to you know, basically click a button that says, uh, if you get in trouble, you're on your own uh, on, on this. And so, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense that you would have to really kind of, oh man, you really teach some basics on Microsoft Office. Yeah, and that it and that it's on us, right? Like, I mean, I think that's the, maybe not everybody feels like that's the case, like that's their role. But the way that I feel working as an instructor at a law school is my job is to meet my students where they are, right? And so I I have an expectation of what I feel like the tech competency should be, be it if they take my legal tech class or not. Like when you get out of your legal research and writing class, there are some basic things that you've got to be able to do in Word. And so I feel like that's on me. And so I do tell the students, you know, if they're in the class and they're getting it in that moment, but then later on when they go, you know, they're going to be submitting something to their professor. And it's like, I do not remember, even though you gave me a PowerPoint that is step by step, I am lost. I'm like, okay, come. Come back to the fold. Come to the library. We will walk you through it. And I do feel like that's a piece of my job. And so I think that that's, you know, maybe the topic for another podcast yep. later. <laughs> um, other duties as assigned. No, that's good. But I, I I liked your idea of meeting the students where they are. And um, I know we're not in the paper chase era no. any longer. We haven't been been there for decades. So it's not, you know, look to your left, look to your right. And, you know, one of you is not going to be here at the end of law school. Practically everybody who starts law school can finish law school now. So yeah, yeah helping, helping them, you know, meet, meet them where they are. Law school is expensive. So it would make sense, uh, you know, for that. I think the other piece of this too, is that it goes beyond sort of us meeting them where they are. We, Going back to that duty, that duty that I feel like we have under the ABA standards, if they're going to go and work for you in the law firm, I have a duty to teach them how to do that because you already said this is where we're spending all of our time. So if I know they're spending all their time in that platform, my job is to teach them that. I have an ethical duty to do that. Mm -hmm. 
All right, I'm going to I'm going to throw one more thing at you, and then I know you have a thing for me that you want you want to throw at me. But, <laughs> you um, know me, I got You gave I, me a mic. I got to put you I on got, the spot. <laughs> so so be, so before you embarrass me, let me let me throw throw it back to you. Um, one of the things that that and we talk a lot to uh, recruiters. Uh, we talk a lot to uh, people that are in placement. One of the things that I've kind of noticed over the years is that we spend a lot of time, money, and, and effort on recruiting students into law schools and then placing them into summer associateships or clerkships, you know, with this idea of creating these pipelines uh, into the industry. And one of the things that I've noticed that we are terrible at is – doing some kind of postmortem or debriefing of the students of the law schools and of the law firms once they come back, once they've had this experience of coming back and just really kind of going through the details. What did you learn? What what was it that you thought was a strength that you brought to your firm? Uh, you know, what was a weakness that, that you had? And do the same thing with the law firms or the or the courts, or wherever they've been placed, to you know, kind of build this cycle of you know a feedback loop, if you will, uh, into it. So, am I just finding the wrong people to talk to, or do you, do you see this as a as an issue as well? No, I definitely see this as an issue. Um, I, I it could wish be I you're had... just the wrong person to talk to too. So. No, no, I see this as an issue, but I also see solutions. Ah, so it's Good. you know, or, so I think. One of the big things that you mentioned was a debriefing. I think that, you know, if this is, say, through a class, like an externship or an internship program, I think that, you know, as you're asking for the journals about their experience, right, you can reach out not only to the student about their experience and what they learned, and you can glean things from that, right, but you can also reach back out to the employer, whoever had them over the summer, and say, where were the tech skills at? Was it what you were expecting? Ask some specific skills-related questions, right? Like, I know the focus is legal tech here, but I think it could be about skills in general for us to be able to do a checkpoint to see, are we actually teaching people what they need to know how to do in their local market, right? Because I think that that's a big thing, right? You know, uh, you and I had a little, We although we didn't overlap, you and I were both in Oklahoma for a short period of time, right? And right. that Oklahoma market is very different than the market I'm in right now here in Charleston, South Carolina. And so some of the skills and things that we needed to teach them and research in Oklahoma are very different than what we were doing, than what we're doing here in Charleston, because you want it to be based on that. I think another thing that you can do, and I've actually, you know, this is a, a sort of low-hanging fruit thing that anybody could potentially do, reach out to your alumni network, right? And that could be at the firm. <laughs> so people that have worked at the firm over the years or maybe have moved on to different positions, what are what's the actual skills? What are the resources? What's the technology that that you use, that you love? And that could be a really good way to kind of reflect back to what we were talking about earlier on to create those special collections, right? If you've got somebody going from one practice group to another practice group, I'd love to hear what's that skill set difference with somebody coming in, you know, and having an internship experience there with one practice group and then maybe going to another practice group. I don't know. Is that kind of in the vein of where your brain is? 
Yeah, and, and and while you were talking, I was trying to remember because uh, we've had some guests on uh, from Penn Law School, and it seems like, and, and I just picked it up, uh, uh, we, we talked with uh, Jennifer Leonard, and that was a little, little over a year ago where she was talking about how they have a relationship with their alumni, and they actually now have a program that they do for – I think it's five years out from when they graduate. They basically oh, right. invite the, their graduates back in and go through a, a program. And one, I think it's it's good. Schools like that heavily rely upon their alumni for donations, for involvement mm-hmm. and engagement in, in the schools. And this is just, you know, one way of doing that. So I think uh, it, I think if anyone's looking for an example – uh, what they're doing at Penn Law with the with their five year graduate program, uh, uh, I guess it's a program where they invite them back, uh, <laughs> might be a, a good example of ways to engage with that. Because uh, I'll tell you, I, I love uh, the University of Oklahoma where I graduated law school, but uh, uh, the only time I ever hear from them is when they want money. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I would really like to, to, you know, to give them some feedback. And that's that's a little untrue. Uh, I, I get invited to, to speak there as well. So. Well, and building off of that, which I think is really great, is the, you know, the idea that your alumni, right, like even in your example, jokingly, like your alumni is going to be honest with you, right? Mm -hmm. There's no real, (laughs) they're always going to tell you the truth. So you're going to get some really good answers if you ask the right questions. That's true. (laughs) That is true. All right, Katie, I know you had had a question for me and and I think it was on docket. So hit hit me. Yeah. So um, first time I was going to teach my legal tech class, I basically throughout to a bunch of law firm folks, hey, what's the number one thing that I need to be teaching? And they, almost everyone responded with, if you're going to teach them one thing, teach them about dockets. So that's something I always make sure to put into my classes. But it seems like there's such a value added with the dockets being taught that it's not being taught. So I would love to hear from you more about why. Why should we be teaching the dockets? What's the value to them? And what have you seen in your firm? Yeah, and I, I think dockets are really interesting because basically any type of lawsuit, whether it's civil or criminal, there's a docket. There, There is a basically a checklist of things that are going on or a timeline of things that interact with the, with the courts. The good thing and the bad thing about dockets is that they are so unique that every court's docket has its own signature on it some way or another. Um, in fact, when I was in Oklahoma at the, the Supreme Court, we were trying to create a unified court docket system for the state. And uh, that's when you run into elected officials who that court docket is their baby and you do not mess with their baby. Um, and and, and it's, uh, it, it ranges a lot of things. There's certain things that, that maybe on the docket get combined or get worded a, a different way depending on what, what the docket is. So, um, but I think a lot of times, let me, let me kind of back up a little bit is, so let's just kind of take it over two big umbrellas here. And that is uh, the federal courts, which are under PACER. Um, and so they do have a unified uh, docket system. Um, and then we'll, we'll stick just to state courts. So we'll just, we'll do two, two big umbrella uh, uh, docket systems. So 
federal and state. Now, the state are insane, just insane, because uh, every every county um, or parish uh, has its own docket system. And even if that is connected with a larger uh, system, um, some of those may not, uh, they may, you know, they may feed in information, but they don't feed out information. And so I think, uh, especially if you're a, a school within a, a certain state and you know that your graduates tend to practice law within a, you know, a set number of states, that if you could focus in on explaining how the dockets are set up, what's the idea behind the dockets, why are courts using uh, the dockets, what information is in those dockets, what information is not going to be in those dockets. And then, you know, and this is kind of like uh, teaching students how to do legal research, that yeah. there's a core, there's there's kind of a, a base uh, of knowledge that every student, and, and it doesn't matter really what kind of law they're going to end up practicing, I think some way or another they get, they, they will touch dockets somewhere in their, in their career. And the better that you can understand just the structure on how dockets are set up and the reasoning behind that and who, who controls the information coming in and out – um, and uh, and how to how to kind of read a docket sheet. That sort of information is transferable regardless of where you end up going after that. Um, and so I think if you can, uh, you know, it, like I said, at the base, getting to understand how what the docket structure is and how to read a docket sheet, I think that would help immensely with people, coming out of law school, practicing law, but then understand, you know, getting a better understanding of the structure of how the the courts on on the ground work. So uh, probably a little little wordier than you needed, <laughs> but uh, uh, what, what else on, on dockets? Yeah, no, I, I, I love that though, right? Because that, that kind of goes to the heart of the sort of value added. I also really like the fact that, you know, you mentioned it, similar to kind of teaching a research process, right? Like you don't actually need to do that deep dive into this is exactly what your docket will always look like, mm -hmm. right? It's this idea that if you can tell them these are the basic things that are going to be in there and, and actually even what you mentioned, just bringing it up, right? Like I, I know the first time that I bring up a docket in my legal tech class for some of my students that have never seen them before, they're floored with all the information that's available on there. They're like, wait, I can actually see a complaint. If it's a transactional situation, I, I potentially can see the contract and what is in, in question. And, you know, it, it's, it in some ways hurts my heart that I'm the first one, you know, when I, when they come to my class, sometimes it's three L's, right? Three right. L's in their last semester. And some of them are like, wow, I'm finally seeing a docket. This is really neat. So I'm glad that I'm teaching it. But yeah, I think it's one of those where it's, you know, I feel like it's, as we talked about kind of low hanging fruit a couple of times, I feel like that might be one of those things that could very easily be brought into a doctrinal class. Why can't you bring the docket up for the case you're talking about, right? And show it to them. Because I think that's another thing. And again, I'll, I'll get a little, <laughs> little heady here, but I think one of the other things that bugs me a lot with law school and why I love teaching legal technology is 
they tend to just think about these are words in books, right? These are opinions in books. Whereas every time I have the opportunity to talk to my students, I always remind them like these were real people. Right. You know, this isn't just an opinion. Like there were real life people that this affected. And so the idea of like, here's the case, let's talk about the theory behind it. And then let's bring up the docket from that case and walk them through that. I mean, how much you could get students who are maybe zoning out in your class really excited about civil procedure again or whatever mm -hmm. it is yeah. Um, yeah. really easily, I think, with that. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're you're spot on. And, and if I can kind of bend this a little bit, because one of the things with dockets is that even though it's gotten, oh my goodness, it's gotten so much better than, than how it used to be. Literally when, uh, and go back to Oklahoma, when we were trying to create <laughs> that unified court docket systems, there were, and it was not just a couple, there, there were a number of courts in the late nineties, early two thousands that their dockets were still literally in docket books, that it was handwritten wow. in docket books Courts now have gone, I would say, probably, I, I, I don't know of a court out One there that's still that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure there might, there might be, it might still be those same counties in Oklahoma. I don't, I'm not sure. But uh, with the courts going electronic, with, uh, with there being companies out there, even though, even though they're, they're for-profit companies like Tyler Technology that are trying to create a standard system of getting information in and out of courts. And you're seeing a lot more with third-party vendors who are finding impressive ways of taking the data that is found in those court dockets and creating algorithms, creating analysis, uh, finding out, you know, which, which way judges tend to typically answer certain questions. Yeah. Um, there's there's a wealth of value in that. And so if schools start pushing and teaching the docket information that's out there, that that may be one more pressure point on the courts themselves, especially the state courts, to make that information more readily accessible and not so doggone expensive. Um, and so well, that's no, one of the yeah, things that, that we, we, I mean, we spend tens of thousands of dollars a month in accessing docket information for, for the firm. And so, and, you know, and we can, we can afford that. And I know that there's, you know, that this is a different conversation again for another longer podcast. Um, <laughs> you just have to bring me back. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just bring you back. But, but uh, you know, I would love to have the schools putting pressure on the courts on uh, making, uh, you know, uh, making PACER free, making court doc, state court docket information free, or at least somehow more accessible and and more affordable than it, than it is now. And I think the other piece of that that you mentioned was standardization of it, right? Like where we can standardize, I think that that will enable it to be taught easier as well. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, Katie Brown, I thank you very much for stepping in while while Marlene is is flying to uh, to <laughs> National Harbor and and probably having having drinks with friends this afternoon. I got you to come in, so so thank you very much for for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, you'll you'll definitely have to come back. So.
<laughs> Works for me. Yeah. Let me know when. <laughs> all right. Hey, and of course, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us on social media. I can be reached at G Lambert or Glambert on Twitter. Katie, what about you? Yeah, you can reach out to me uh, via LinkedIn. It's actually Kathleen Katie Brown. Or you can also reach out to me at Charleston School of Law. My email is right there. And uh, feel free to email me. Awesome. Really fine with awesome. that. Yeah. Or if you want to, you can leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSecca. Thank you, Jerry. And thank you, Katie. Thanks for stepping in. Thanks again.